Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. The show is a proud media partner for the 11th Annual Media Excellence Awards, which are produced by Access Entertainment in Los Angeles, California. The Media Excellence Awards are recognized as the most influential awards show, honoring innovation and leadership in all things mobile entertainment, lifestyle, and technology. For more information on how to submit to these awards, please visit MediaXAwards.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Shannon Bell. She's the VP, Head of Product Management and Strategy at Amdocs. Shannon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. Um, the, the stuff that we're going to talk about kind of later, I think, is, is really quite fascinating. And you have a ton of thoughts and experience in the space. But maybe before we get into all that stuff, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Sure. I'm Canadian. I grew up in a small town in southern Ontario called Stratford. Okay, very cool. That's a nice area of uh, Canada. And nice in the summer, yes. A little cold in yeah, the Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I, I think most Canadian cities would say that. <laughs> so you went to university. What did you take and why? Um, at university, I took a combination of communications and business. Okay. I think that um, I, I, looking, going back 20 years now, um, I definitely felt that there was a need in that space in communication specifically. Um, and I wanted to understand and learn technology. And my very first job at a university, I immediately started in a high tech company, learning and understanding technology. And I think that being able to bring that business mindset and thinking to technology is where I've always tried to stay throughout my career. Okay. So Walk me through kind of your career, maybe some career highlights up until kind of what you're doing at Amdocs. Sure. Um, so as I said, I started in technology right away out of university. Yeah. Um, and then I moved um, abroad. I had a few opportunities early in my career to go do some really interesting things. I moved to Switzerland. Very cool. Um, and I actually was helping Swisscom deploy the first IPVPN network. Oh, very um, cool. Our enterprise customers. So that was a fascinating experience back when uh, they were moving from ATM and frame relay technology to IP. Sure. Uh, so that, uh, that started to give me kind of a broader perspective of, you know, the needs of, of communication service providers. From there, I moved to England. I spent many years in England um, working in the technology space. Okay. Um, in a combination of some small startups, and then I moved to a larger organization. Again, really focused on how communications technology could help service providers to offer better experiences to their customers. Um, from England, I moved to Texas. Um, got okay. to spend a little bit of time in the U.S. Sure. And, uh, and, and that's where I really started to focus on product management. So before that, I'd been mainly involved in helping deploy these types of solutions in service providers networks. When I moved to Texas, I had just finished my MBA. I started to um, work in product management and really to start to look and think about the future experiences and how do you shape and define and, and build a strategy around the products that are going to be needed, not today, but in the next five years. Sure. 
And uh, then I ended up back in Canada working in a small technology company, which was acquired by Amdocs seven years ago. And I've been at Amdocs for the past seven years. Sure. So walk me through kind of what exactly Amdocs is, and then we'll kind of get into what you do at Amdocs. Sure. Amdocs is um, a large software and services provider that really works with communications and media companies uh, of all sizes globally. Um, and, and our focus is really around how can we accelerate, so use our software and services to accelerate the digital transformation that's happening in the industry. Okay. Um, Amdocs has about 25,000 employees globally. We wow. have over 350 major customers that are using our solutions. Um, and, and overall, we're about $3.9 billion in revenue in, in fiscal year 17. So that's kind of the wow. size and scale of the organization. That's huge. So what's your role? Because you didn't start kind of where you're in now. So maybe do you want to walk us through your kind of journey at Amdocs? Sure, absolutely. I came to Amdocs, as I said, through an acquisition. Right. Um, acquisition right. of Bridgewater Systems in uh, 2011. Bridgewater Systems was a, a vendor providing network solutions around policy control. Interesting. And, um, and Bridgewater components are a capability as part of Amdocs Open Network Solutions today. Um, but, but from there, I moved into the broader Amdocs about five years ago and started working in the customer management, and uh, which later became the digital organization. So today I run product and strategy as part of Amdocs Digital, which is responsible for the whole set of offerings around digital and customer management, intelligence, our revenue and charging portfolio, and so on. So the full suite of capabilities we provide to our customers, um, which is a shift from where I was in the network um, many years ago. Sure. So walk me through a bit of your thoughts on kind of, you know, AI and the industry and, and kind of in enterprise, because you guys have some huge clients, you guys are a big global kind of company. And I think like, obviously it, it's starting to happen in, in kind of enterprise, but I think a lot of AIs kind of talked about maybe at smaller companies or startups. But what, what fascinates me about what you guys are doing is you guys are doing it at for big companies kind of already internally and externally. For sure. Yeah. I think it's, um, I think it's interesting. If I look back probably three or four years now, when we started to define our digital strategy as a, as a company, sure. intelligence was immediately a cornerstone of that strategy. Okay. And we looked at intelligence and we said, you know what? All of our customers are sitting on huge amounts of data in their network. Right. They understand, you know, profiles and preferences and how people are behaving and interacting with their network and so on. But that data was largely unused. And, and so when we started to think about what, what makes a positive experience for a customer and how can these large enterprises emulate that type of experience that you get when you, you know, interact with Google or um, Apple or Amazon and so on, we looked at the role of intelligence as part of that. And, and we said that, you know, it, it's making that customer experience personalized is critical. You want the customer to feel like you know them, you understand, you're making relevant offers and interactions with them sure. by averaging the data that you have. And, and that's really the critical role of intelligence. And so we looked at it and we said that, you know, AI in this context is really key to making our enterprise customers smarter. 
And so first of all, it's about understanding the data that you have about your business. So who are your customers? What are they buying? How are you supporting them? And then once you have that data and understand it, you can start to analyze it and move to this world of hyper-personalization. And that was really our objective. So to take our customers from that basic knowledge of the data that they had and move them to this hyper-personalized um, environment. And, and ultimately, it was to embed intelligence into every single thing that they were doing in their business. And so we said to our customers, look, you have the data, we can analyze and, and make that data useful. But at the end of the day, what we need to do is we need to be able to um, embed intelligence into all of your business processes, both internal and external. So when you're engaging with the customer, there should be intelligence as part of how you interact with them. But equally, when you have internal folks that are defining new product offers for the market and so on, they also should have intelligence as a core part of the tool sets they're using to make those determinations. And, and that was the thinking and the objective and the strategy as we started to embark on this intelligence uh, domain. Interesting. So before we kind of dive a little bit deeper into that, I, I, there's something that I really want to cover that kind of fascinates me because you guys are obviously like a huge company. You have huge clients. How do you guys kind of stay innovative and kind of on top of this stuff so you can recommend um, some of this innovation and intelligence and AI to your customers? It's, it's a great question because innovation is not an easy thing to do. And, it's incredibly uh, and difficult, right? And by the time you get it implemented, there's like a new thing already, right? Absolutely. I think that uh, one of the things that we did, and, and it, it really applies in my mind to both digital and intelligence, is we completely transformed how we work. Okay. And, and it, it, it's not just about the products you build. And this is one of the things that we learned early on. Is it's, it's as much about the culture and the organization and how you work as it's about the products you put in the market. Interesting. And, and we had to transform. And what that meant was that we actually were looking at, we were constantly looking at, you know, what's available, what's in the market, what's in open source. Not everything has to be built here. You know, when we built our first chat bot, we actually looked at the AI engines from Microsoft um, and from Google and from um, IBM. And we said, you know what? This is an area we don't need to build natural language processing. These guys have amazing capabilities. So we're going to work with the capabilities they've brought to the market. And so it, it's just this mindset of, thinking open and thinking about how you can leverage what's out there to leapfrog and to bring the newest types of innovations. We have, you know, co we're constantly running hackathons. We've done joint hackathons with Microsoft um, where they'll bring technology and our, our folks will come and work on it um, to try and continuously drive innovative thinking and ideas. Interesting. So have you had any pushback or, or um, big pushback from kind of using um, open source or kind of um, products or kind of code bases built by companies like like Google or Facebook or or Microsoft to your kind of enterprise clients that they're very much like no no we want to own everything like they want all the IP or it doesn't seem like it's been a big issue to you. It's not been a big issue because there's a shift in, the, in, in enterprise as well. Now, I want to make one very important clarification here. Oh, sure. If, if it, one thing is to use open source, but it's really another to have enterprise-level support mm. that, because, you know, their networks need to run 24 by 7. So if I right. pick up my phone 
and it doesn't work, there's a problem. Sure. Um, so, so it's not, so our customers enterprise in general are very much in favor of adopting and using open source. Sure. Um, but they're also on the page that you must ensure there's enterprise grade support gotcha. um, for that software. Sure. Well, and I think too, and, and I like, Props to Microsoft here, like they've open sourced a lot of their stuff that traditionally wasn't open source, right? And so I think when big enterprise see other big enterprise, especially enterprise that are making this software actually open source stuff and then provide enterprise grade support to, to that open source product, like it makes them feel a lot more comfortable. Is that kind of fair to say? It's absolutely fair to say, and, and one of the big open source initiatives we've been involved in was um, around network function virtualization. And oh, very we were cool. One of the founding members um, to put that capability into open source with the Linux Foundation, and sure. there's many service providers behind that initiative, like AT&T and others. And and I think it's a testament to the fact that there is a strong belief that you know the power of the community and open source can drive better benefits. Sure. So I, I want to kind of go back to what we were talking about before I kind of took you on this tangent. Um, you mentioned kind of building like chatbots or, or virtual kind of assistants. How do like, I, I know people have kind of seen those online, but we're talking about something a lot more advanced when for what you guys are doing with your clients. And, and how do you kind of actually leverage that kind of stuff to actually benefit your clients? So it's a, it's a it's it's interesting because chatbots have become um, very common and, and everyone's talking about chatbot or virtual assistants and so sure. on. I think that um, you know and, and Facebook did a lot when they opened up the the environment in Facebook and the APIs to support that chatbot ecosystem. Yeah. So enterprises that have pages on Facebook. So so that definitely has become very commonplace. I, I think you know when we think about it, and I think about it in the enterprise context, I really think about it as how do I manage the non-human engagement? So if you think about an enterprise like a large service provider, you know, a certain percentage of the interactions they have with their customers will be through human channels sure. and some will be through non-human. And the human channels typically are retail in the call center. And, you know, over the last probably 10 or 15 years, there's been a huge movement to try and drive down traffic in the call center because it's expensive. And customers can deal with self-service and have a better experience if they can complete things themselves. And, and so part of that is investing in non-human interfaces and technology, and chatbots is one of those. And, uh, and, and simple chatbots deal with simple interactions. And, and I think that, you know, a lot of what we see in the market today are very simple chatbots. Sure. But if you think about the complexity of these enterprise businesses, Providing a chatbot or a non-human interaction engine means that you need to really be able to mimic what's available in the human channel. And uh, this has really driven this, this notion or this set of requirements around omni-channel engagement. So if I'm a customer and I start talking to a chatbot, um, I need to have seamless interaction from the website to the chatbot to the call center if the chatbot can't help me. It's not enough that a chatbot just says, oh, sorry, I don't understand you, end right. of conversation. Um, you're not giving a positive experience. So being able to implement these customer journeys to cross different channels is, uh, is really the critical component for large enterprise to have successful interactions and successful chatbots. And the chatbot needs to know who you are as a customer, what services you have, 
Um, if you want to buy something, they need to understand if you're eligible to buy it. Do you live in the right neighborhood where that service is available or the right region if you're trying to buy content? Um, do you have existing services? You know, what are your bill payments? Um, how do you pay your bill? How do you authenticate that customer? All of those types of things, it's critical to know and understand. So the chatbot needs to not only be able to decipher what the customer is asking for and derive the intent of that customer engagement, but also be, has to be able to draw on this huge pool of data that you have about the customer to contextualize that interaction and understand how you're going to serve that customer in, 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 what, uh, in what way. So the chatbot inherently needs to be smarter and more aware uh, because you're dealing with complex services. Uh, and services that aren't just, you know, a simple OTT service, I want to pay a couple dollars and get access to this movie. It's much more complex. It's, you know, fixed line services to your house or mobile services and, and entertainment services and so on. So the complexity is different. Um, I do think that the, um, the chatbot provides the technology to take a lot of the simple interactions out of the call center. Sure. And we see that happening now. And I think it'll mature over time. The chatbots need to get smarter. You know, they're using machine learning to understand where interactions fall out. You may need to go back and, and rework those to understand what the customer's asking for. Sure. No, that makes sense. So what's your thoughts on something like Google launched at IO that where they're going to basically make tedious calls for you, pretend to be like a real person to like book an appointment or a reservation or something like that, what's your thoughts on kind of, at what point do you kind of need to tell the person they're talking to a machine that maybe sounds like a person where they're actually potentially talking to like a real person? Like, do you think it's from the get-go or later on or at kind of what point do you need to kind of tell the person you're interacting with it that it's a real person or a computer? I think that in general, uh, transparency from the get-go is important. I'm actually sure. glad you brought up Google because I think it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating what Google's done. So, you know, today we're talking about chatbots and enterprises in general are talking about chatbots and how they can serve their customers with human and non-human channels. Sure. And that's kind of a common dialogue in the industry. But, but what Google's doing is they're completely flipping the dynamic. They're saying, yeah, okay, you can interact with a human or a non-human at the hair salon or the bank or the service provider. But what they're saying is they're saying, but I'm going to give you a personal assistant and a virtual assistant and AI-enabled assistant that's going to do all that interacting. So it's no longer a human interacting with a human or non-human on the enterprise side. It's actually a human interacting with its own personal non-human yeah, interesting. Then interacting with those. And they've completely flipped the dynamic. So if I'm using um, a non-human assistant to talk to my service provider, to pay my bill, to change my service or whatever, and they're talking to a human or a non-human on the other end, does it matter? Do, do they need to communicate that it's a non-human talking to a non-human? Or do you get that, that, uh, that, um, that dynamic shift and, and it changes? I think it's this... Uh, I really believe that this is changing the dynamic of communication. I think the fact that it's human or non-human is today it's, it's incredibly important because the enterprise needs to uh, be credible to the customer. Right. And I think that that's very important for the enterprise. Um, they need to say whether it's a human or non-human. Um, but I think that in the future, it becomes much less uh, relevant when you have non-humans communicating on behalf of humans. 
No, that's interesting. Yeah, because I think, and, and this is obviously like a really dumb kind of example and it doesn't really apply in enterprise, but like if I use my digital assistant to make a call to a restaurant to book a reservation for Friday at 6 p.m. and the restaurant has a just a digital assistant actually booking it and then maybe on like I get a notification to confirm and the restaurant gets a notification to confirm and like one of us has the ability or both of us have the ability to kind of say yes or no, then is that really bad? And maybe in some cases, a simple example like that could be um, for enterprise, like if I want to add, I don't know, voicemail to my cell plan. And again, like I have my virtual assistant, the enterprise or phone company has their, you know, assistant talk to my assistant and then I confirm or I can cancel or something like that. Like, I don't think that's necessarily bad. If I'm trying to, you know, get, um, uh, let's say telephone to an entire office building I'm building, probably not going to be a thing that a virtual assistant can kind of handle between two virtual assistants. You're going to have to have some human interaction. Do you know what I'm trying to get at there? Like, I think it really is almost like a case by case basis, as long as there's kind of an opt out on both sides. Exactly. And I think the complexity of the interaction will dictate whether it's a human or non-human that takes it. And, you know, this is, this is the fascinating part of it. It's, you know, we believe that you should ha have the ability as an enterprise to take all of your interactions with your customers through non-human channels. Interesting. And it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that you will do that. And, and it's very important, the clarification here. I, I want to make sure that you have the ability to handle everything through non-human channels. And then I want it to be a business decision. Right. Your business should decide what are the high value interactions that I want to use humans for. And, and, you know, you can see it if you go to uh, the Apple website to get support. As soon as you express intent to buy something, they transfer you, they transition you to a human. That's a business decision. It's not yeah, that the non-human chatbot can't handle it. And so really the goal needs to be that all of that, it, it's no longer a technology decision. The non-human interfaces can deal with any type of interaction your business needs to do. It's a business decision that it's, it's better for me to handle this complex type of discussion or this purchase transaction with a human as opposed to a non-human. Sure. Well, and, and I also think too that in over time, it's going to get so much better, right? And you're going to have so many more decisions to make. At what point do you bring a human into the conversation or not, or right from the beginning? And it'll be kind of all over. You're right. That's interesting. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think that's key. So I think that certainly is one of the dynamics that will see mature as chatbots and the AI technology matures as well. Sure. So for what about things like actually making sure that, because um, I know computers nowadays or AI can basically put together sentences or write paragraphs of stuff and it, it's pretty good. It might not be perfect, but most people I think wouldn't be able to tell the difference. What are your thoughts on kind of the, the natural language uh, processing stuff um, and then maybe some facial recognition stuff as well? What are your thoughts on kind of those? I think we'll see it mature really quickly. I think okay. that um, the more experience that these engines get, the better they get at, you know, understanding and being able to parse and, and derive the intent of the, the, what the customer is asking for. But, but there's, an, there, there's, there's something important here that, that is really the responsibility of the businesses that are deploying it, which is you need to train that engine. 
And sure. so you do need to invest in constantly training the engine because every different industry speaks different language. You know, in sure. telecommunications, you know, we speak in crazy acronyms. And, um, and in other industries, you know, there's terminology that's, that's very specific to, indus- to insurance or to the medical field and so on. That training doesn't exist in those engines unless you, you train it. Um, so it doesn't come natively in those engines. And I think that what we'll see over time is those libraries and dictionaries of dialogues and intents and conversations will grow um, across all industries, not just the early adopters of the technology. And, and so we'll see much richer engines and much richer capability in terms of what the um, NLP is capable of. Um, and, then, and then I think that then you can start to do more complex interactions online and you can have you know, multi-threaded interactions where you're tackling different topics and, and uh, having conversations that are spanning those different topics um, and, and still be able to follow a common thread with, with the AI engine in the background. Uh, so, so I do think, you know, that that world will look different in three or four or five years um, as the technology continues to mature. On the facial recognition side, I think that, you know, we already see major impacts of facial recognition in terms of, you know, look at the Apple iPhone, right? Yeah. And uh, um, I, I mean, look at, you know, now how you access, I, I, I no longer need to type in, you know, my name and my passwords and, and authenticate to get into my bank account app online. I yep. use that technology. And so I think that that already is, is mature and continues to mature and transform. And I think part of it now becomes adoption. Um, because I think the technology is getting to be so mature, it will become adopted by more and more different applications and technologies and so on uh, to become more widespread. So in essence, your face is becoming your digital identity in that context. Yeah, it's interesting because if you can basically identify me in a handful of ways through you know, voice and face and maybe my fingerprints still in some cases, depending on what it is or a handful of other kind of ways, it's actually quite fascinating. And then if you could basically, like I only speak English, I don't know any other language, but if I can communicate kind of in real time with somebody in another language and a computer actually just kind of handles that for you. And I know um, there's been a handful of apps and Google tried to do that with their like earbud or whatever they were called, bud thing. It doesn't matter. Their headphones that they released last year, they, they kind of got pretty good mixed reviews, but for me, it was kind of fascinating if you were traveling all the time and you could just wear like an earpiece and you just pick the language of the country you're in and you could talk your native language and it would just automatically, you know, through your phone speaker, just tr- live translate to you like and, and then back at you. It, it's kind of fascinating, the whole space, but it could easily go down the path of if it translates what I'm saying um, in a negative way, that whole experience from a customer point could be really bad, right? And so just watching kind of how the industry kind of handles that, I think, um, is going to be quite fascinating. Do, do you kind of agree with that? I think so. I think that, um, you know, we, we hear about the bad experiences. We don't hear as much sure. about the positive experiences. And when technology is, is maturing yeah. at a rapid pace, um, you know, when you're introducing new technology, there are for sure tons and tons and tons of examples where, you know, it, it, uh, it gets it wrong. The technology yeah. gets it wrong. And, that's, and, and, and I think that over time that will, it will become less and less. Sure. Uh, but I think it's part of the natural course of introducing new technology. And, 
you know, you can easily go online and, and go to different chatbots and, and fool the chatbots. Sure. It's simple to do. Um, and, but, but it will get better over time. And I think that, um, you know, the, the staying power of the technology will be in and of the fact that it is able to introduce a more positive customer experience at the end of the day. And I think that that, you know, that in and of itself is, is, you know, you have to constantly keep an eye on what is that customer experience. So maybe the customer can fool the chat box, but do you immediately transfer that customer to a human who then addresses their question? Right. So then that's a positive experience. If you leave the customer hanging, then, you know, it's a negative experience. So I think that the, the resolution to, to those issues will be in and of, of itself, how you handle the customer experience and, and customers in general, um, have a higher degree of tolerance or patience when they know they're talking to a robot than when they know they're talking to a human, which is also goes back yeah, to our discussion point, earlier actually. on transparency around whether it's a human or non-human. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. You're right. You you do like if the the chatbot gives you back kind of the answer you weren't looking for, you're like, okay, I gotta like think of a new way to ask the question. Where if it's a human being, you you sometimes you kind of almost like jump down their throat, right? Like, um, or at least some people do. Um, Exactly. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Thanks for listening to Building the Future. This show is heard by more than a million people monthly in over 15 markets worldwide, including Silicon Valley. Kevin Horick's guests are leading business owners, successful entrepreneurs, and merchandisers worldwide. Now, your brand has an opportunity to tap into this dedicated and active group of business people who are looking for places to invest and the right opportunities to support. Find out how you can get involved at buildingthefutureshow.com. So we've kind of talked about a bunch of things, but how can kind of companies that are looking to maybe bring in some sort of AI or digital or kind of digital intelligence into their organization, where do they kind of start? Or is there kind of a bunch of things that they need to do before they would come to a company like Amdocs to actually help them integrate some of this stuff into their day-to-day? It's, um, I think it's, it's, uh, it's a good question because we get asked this a lot. How do we start? Where do we sure. start? And, um, and I think, you know, my point is always that the mindset needs to be that you must start. Now is the time to experiment. So, okay. you know, identifying specific use cases where it's clear how AI can be applied to deliver a better customer experience, I think it's first and foremost the important point. So, you know, I don't need to worry about digitalizing or making intelligent my entire enterprise from day one. I need to look for specific cases where the application of intelligence can drive uh, a better business uh, results, uh, return on investment, a better customer experience at the end of the day. And once you identify those use cases, then this, this allows you to gain a little bit of experience and confidence and, and equally your teams to gain experience and confidence. Um, so if you embrace that level of experimentation, um, what you'll find is that you understand the technology, you understand the application of it, you can drive a better experience at the end of the day, hopefully a positive business outcome. And then what you'll see across the organization is that other groups, other teams, other use cases emerge very rapidly. And we see this in our implementations. You start with simple and you start to immediately get requirements to move to more complex use cases. I think that's the first key point is, is to find that opportunity to just start. And, and I think the second thing that I, I would tell our customers and, and in general 
is to really look at how you can source AI skills from within or outside of the organization. The skill set is critical. Having people that understand um, is, is really one of the key ingredients for success. Um, it's not just about machines and code. It's about people with the right AI intelligence and skills. Um, and, and one of the challenges we see is the scarcity in, in, uh, in human skills to be able to set up and run AI. Right. It will be a huge risk for enterprises that want to adopt intelligence. Um, and uh, we did some research in this area, and what we saw was that far ahead of the technology not being mature enough, um, the scarcity of skill sets in, of humans in this area to drive those implementations is, is critical. So I think that's the other important piece of the puzzle um, is the, hu- the, the people that can drive um, and have that right skill set. And then where are the business opportunities to apply intelligence? Sure. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So do you guys get a lot of kind of pushback from employees in the sense that they might be worried that their job's going to be kind of obsolete? Or how do you guys kind of work with a company to kind of mitigate that kind of, because that could cause a lot of chaos internally. I think, but I think that, um, you know, it's, it's, we hear this with technology and, and you can go back 20, 30 years and you constantly hear this with different technologies and people. Sure. So people are worried about, you know, the impact of technology on jobs. And, and this is for sure a challenge, but in general, what history shows us is that technology typically opens up more jobs. Agreed, yeah. And so, you know, one of the challenges we see today is, okay, we're looking at, at, at human interactions in the call center as an example and how we can replace those with non-human interactions. But what is the net impact of that? The net impact of that is that all of a sudden the, the calls that the call center is getting are going to be the more complex ones. Yeah. So we yeah. may need to up the people in the call center to deal with higher degree of complexity in terms of the calls that they take and but the implementation of intelligence to drive the uh, simpler calls will open up jobs and roles around the intelligence so I think the profile of jobs changes but I don't necessarily think that um, that it takes away roles because I think that it's um, you know the role will change but but it won't necessarily take away roles it will shift roles to other areas within the organization. And I think that's a healthy thing as, you know, technology and, and organizations mature. This is, this is what generally happens. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think, and maybe this is a really, really bad generalization, but I think majority of people at their job don't enjoy doing the stuff, the same like repetitive thing and to like, I guess to use the call center example, like a lot of times with technology, the first question you ask somebody is like, did you turn it off and turn it on back on again? And if like, maybe this is really simple, but if the chatbot can basically handle those types of questions and, you know, maybe that fixes 50% of the problems or 20% of the problems or 80% of the problems, it doesn't really matter. But then if that's, you know, then they get, if there's still an issue, those people get passed on to, to a human being, you know, nobody, like you're wasting somebody's time, I think, checking something as simple as that, right? And so I, I, to your point, I think, sure, like everybody has tasks, no matter what their job is that they probably don't like, or they're so simple that it's kind of a waste of their time, right? I, I think that's what you're getting at. For sure. And I think that, you know, we, we see other technologies as well, like, um, RPA process automation, you know, looking at how to automate and uh, and and 
eliminate some of those, you know, simple repetitive types of functions. The, the technology's existed for years sure. um, to be able to do that. It's just, you know, the, the change, I think, with the intelligence is, is really the change in terms of the dynamic of I can now communicate with, you know, a non-human in a way that mimics a human. And I think that's what causes the, the, the concern um, more so than just the technology to, to you know, deal with some of those uh, interactions with non-human channels. Sure. So I'm sure you get this a lot too, that your customers probably say this is going to cost them a ton of money. Maybe, and I would probably say maybe up front, you're going to spend a bunch of money, but I think long-term it's going to save them a lot of money. Do you agree with that? I think for sure it is. And I, and they see the business case and the business benefits long-term. Okay. I think this goes back to how I suggest they start. Okay. And I think that identifying those first use cases that will have a business impact and seeing the return on investment from a small program um, where you implement some intelligence, you know, helps drive the confidence that this is actually going to achieve that end state objective that we all envisage. And so there's, there's, a, a broad belief across the industry as a whole that this can deliver significant returns. But when you start small and experiment, understand what the technology can and cannot do, you start to see those results. And so we very much look at the ROI on the first initial implementation projects to help drive the broader business case for how you can um, deliver this across the enterprise. And, and I think that it's uh, it's more in line with how business operates today as well. They're not looking at a, you know, 10 year transformation program to get to, you know, the, um, the rainbow at the end. They're, they're looking at, you know, how am I delivering that value to my business and my customers this month and next month and the next month. And, uh, and I will get to that end state. Absolutely. But I'm going to do it in such a way that I'm constantly delivering value to my business. Sure. So how long should kind of a first kind of, introduction of intelligence into a business take should it be like three months six months i i know it depends on kind of what they're trying to do but how long roughly should you maybe try to make your first kind of entry into the space take in your in your business i think an incubation project should be a three to six month effort okay um and and really you know, use that time to understand and evaluate and, and realize the results, um, implement that and drive some kind of tangible benefit out of it. Sure. Um, and then build the roadmap for how you start to do other use cases. And, you know, if I take a tangible example, like a chatbot, sure. maybe it means that I build my chatbot to address five scenarios. Okay. And I deploy that day one with support for five scenarios. And day two, you know, maybe three months later, I add another 10 gotcha. and then I add more and more. Um, or, it, you know, it's not even just specific to chatbot. It could be that I implement a new business process around um, how I use intelligence to make recommendations to my customers. And I do it for one line of business today and okay. I see the results. And then I look at expanding it to others. There's, there's tons of examples of how you can find those um, areas of the business or business processes to drive intelligence into. And it's really just a case of, of defining a, a reasonable scope that's going to show you and the organization some benefit that you can use to drive into additional areas. Sure. And, and I think, um, and, and give me your thoughts on this. Like, I, I'm going to use these examples just because I think it, it resonates with, with the, the most amount of people. 
is Google and Apple and Microsoft basically release new versions of software yearly, but like six months or more before that, there's like a beta version of all their new software that like developers have access to. They even have public betas now that, that you can have access to. So like they're basically on a six month delivery cycle. Sure, some, some of that time it's beta. Um, for example, like Chrome, most people have heard of Chrome, like that browser is pushing code, new, new features, maybe bug fixes, kind of on an eight week cycle. Firefox is the same way, handful of other software is the same way. And like, I know that's not directly what we're talking to, but like the point I'm trying to drive across is like, companies out there are pushing code, you know, every few weeks, never mind this like yearly cycle or every few years, like sometimes we're used to, right? And so if you spend two years building a chat bot, two years from now, like what you built could be completely obsolete. Is, is that fair to say? Precisely. It's exactly the point. And I think, you know, I talked earlier about how we as an organization had to transform how we work and what we released. And sure. we moved to monthly deliveries of code. Because okay. the rate of innovation and the ability to push new capabilities to our customers was critical. And when you're working in this continuous delivery cycle, um, which technology enables today, um, the expectation is that you have that ability to push constantly new capabilities to your, to your customers. So it's, it's completely the reality of, you know, if you're driving new capabilities out, you know, monthly or weekly or, or quarterly, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, waiting two years, as you said, is, is not reasonable. Sure. No, and I, I think another good example, last summer, um, we were talking with a big kind of enterprise client and they were talking 18 months from adding the, you know, the fingerprint uh, login on the iPhone to their app. And it's just funny. We're like, you can't take that long. Like you need to have this out kind of like before Christmas of last year or don't even bother. And then a couple months later, Apple comes out with the iPhone X, basically kills the whole fingerprint scanning thing anyway. And sure, I know they released the iPhone 8 with, with where it still has it, but like they're going the direction of getting rid of that, right? And so I think that to me was like a really, really good example of enterprise saying, well, just add that in like 18 months. It's like, well, in 18 months, the phones aren't even gonna have that. So like, why even bother building it if you're not gonna roll it out right away? Exactly, exactly. And again, it has to be tied to what is the business benefit, right? Sure. The business benefit is ease of customer experience um, to make it simpler for customers to use your app. Um, you know, a return on an 18-month investment is probably not there. Sure. Um, yeah. So how, how do you guys, though, actually drive that through to enterprise? Do they somehow like just kind of get it? Or because I found sometimes that could be like a huge challenge to kind of sell that to upper management, especially if they're a bit older? I think that, you know, the industry's changed. And sure. if I look okay. at the last few years, the industry really has changed and, and we see it in our customers. The um, level of interest in technology as an enabler for driving business agility is at all levels of the organization. So everyone within the telecommunications industry, communications and so on, understands that they need to be more agile. They need to be okay. able to deliver capabilities faster to the market. So I think, and, and, and technology in that sense is an enabler for that. And so I think that we, we don't get resistance from our customers Interesting. about making that move. 
I think that uh, they have an understanding of the fact that the move is critical to enabling them to continue to compete in the market and be more agile. And I think that, um, that the technology, you know, the journey of, of, of our customers to adopt new technology mirrors our journey to adopt new technology. And so I think when we look at the organizational impacts and moving to monthly releases and having the operations and infrastructure to support that, they're on that same journey and they're investing heavily in that journey because they believe in the outcome. So, so it's not, it's definitely not a challenge uh, that we see with our customers for the most part. Well, that's good. No, that's, that's great. Well, and I think too, maybe it's partly because, you know, a, a lot of people, and I hate, I, I keep going back to like the Google and Apple example, because I think everybody can kind of relate to it. It's like, most people understand that like their iPhone or their Android phone or their iPad or, or whatnot, like has a big software update kind of yearly in the fall. I, I think most people kind of understand that at this point. So maybe that's probably really kind of helped them as well understand that they need to kind of be on top of this because they're getting new updates to their the phone that they use every day. Yeah, culturally, I think that has an impact for sure. Um, seeing and understanding the, uh, the, the tools that they're using in their daily lives and, and how those are um, built and developed and, and so on, you know, makes, I think makes everyone realize that the experience they get in other verticals, other industries with, in their own daily jobs should, should mirror that in some sense. People expect that Apple-like experience all the time. Sure. So we've talked a lot about kind of today and, and what people can do, but where do you see kind of the space going, um, you know, three, five, 10 years from now? I, I know that's like a crazy kind of question, but I'm just curious to, to get maybe like a couple of predictions just that you've kind of seen that could happen. I think that, um, I think it's back to every business being intelligence driven. Okay. So I think that, you know, today, uh, so, so first and foremost, I think every business must have an AI strategy. Okay. It's critical Agreed. if they don't have to today, they must have that. And otherwise, they just simply won't be competitive. But I think that it's, it's, um, it's really, if I look into the future, it's about how you use that intelligence and data to drive the engagement with your customer. And, and I believe that businesses can get to the point where they're entirely intelligence-driven. So the new offers they put in the market, the new products they bring to market, um, who they target in terms of customers and promotions and campaigns and so on. I think all of that can be driven by intelligence and take those decision points out of the hands of humans and, and rely on data and intelligence to make those determinations because the capabilities of intelligence to pull in so many different factors into a decision-making process is beyond what we can do as humans. And I think sure. that that is, is going to be one of the critical tipping points in terms of entirely intelligence-driven businesses and their ability to anticipate, you know, what a customer wants or where the market's going or where the need is and why the need is in that region. And today, we rely a lot on offline reports um, and analytics around usage and so on, but, but all of that can be computed and calculated in real time. Sure. I think that, um, you know, I think the other big thing is that I, I, I believe that whole dynamic around every human having their own virtual assistant to drive their engagement and interaction will cause a knock-on effect in the back end of, uh, in, on the opposite side amongst all of these enterprises for how they engage. And I really believe 
that it will become a non-human first environment where the interaction from my assistant to an, is, is always to a non-human on the enterprise side, which then they filter through to a human. And that human will interact maybe directly with me as a human in, in certain cases where the, the expectation or the interaction requires it. But in general, all of that um, day-to-day types of communication to complete things that are fairly routine will be done by non-human to non-human. And then I think that that will open up a whole environment for messaging and communications and how you manage those non-human to non-human interactions, which I don't think we've really, we have today. I don't think it's fully thought through. And, uh, And I think that's also one of the key things that we'll see in the coming years. Yeah, it's interesting because I I think the thing that fascinates me about the whole space is like, if you have no AI and you're collecting no data on, say, in your company today, and I know that's crazy, but like if, but think about how much data you will collect on just me alone, say in three years or five years or 10 years. And if you've been collecting data on me because I've been a customer for the last decade and you can use that data and then the data in the next three years, like you'll have so much stuff just related to me and other people like me. And you could kind of profile me, not in a bad way, but like you could actually send me recommendations and say, you know what, like maybe we can make your phone bill cheaper because you have a plan that say you have North America wide calling, but you only call the States three times a month and you're paying, uh, you know, we could save you $5 a month or something like that. Like I get this is really simple, but I think, how much data you will collect and be able to analyze and computers will be able to, as the AI kind of catches up to analyze the data. It's really kind of fascinating to see where all this will play out and and where it'll go for for good, right? Like I, I know obviously this all stuff could be used bad too, but like I think generally a lot of this stuff will be used to actually make our lives simpler and better and potentially really provide us kind of more time to let kind of our own digital personal assistants just kind of handle things for us that are kind of a time suck. Precisely. And I think, and, and, and I think that the key is that that data, a lot of that data exists. It's sitting in right. data lake. Every, yeah. You know, Gmail, look at how intelligent Gmail is. It's collecting sure. data constantly. Um, you know, any enterprise that you engage with has data about you. They're just not using it. Right. But if they proactively use it for positive purposes. So if, you know, if my service provider says to me, okay, Shannon, you know, if I'm use your example, you haven't called this area in this amount of time, we can reduce your plans. That's a positive experience totally. for me. I'm happy. I I think it's good if they contact me and say, you know, we've been monitoring and you've called, you know, um, the U.S. three times in the last two months and we should change your plan and upsell you this. I may view that negatively. There's a subtle difference. And uh, and I think that and, and this is, I think, one of the big challenges with data and privacy and how you use the data which is still a concern. And, and I understand the concern on both sides. It can be used for good and it can be used for bad. And, and I think that's one of the cultural issues we need to tackle um, that, uh, that inhibits some of the broader use of data uh, is the perception, people's perception of, of when data is used. No, I, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it is quite, quite fascinating, right? Because you're right. Like if my phone provider sent me a message that said, hey, we reduced your bill by $5 a month or something because you don't use all this stuff. I think 
very few people, if any, globally would, would complain about that. But you're right. If they upsold me, you would probably be very disappointed or, or quite angry, right? And so making those decisions um, are going to be very quite fascinating. But, but Shannon, we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So is there anything else that you maybe want to kind of close with and then kind of mention where people can get more information about yourself and uh, MDocs? Um, sure. I think, you know, the, the last thing I would say on this is that um, back to the earlier point, just start. If you're thinking about intelligence sure. or how to intelligently enable your business, just start. I mean, AI sounds daunting and there are so many aspects of it that it can be confusing. But actually, if you think about it at its most simplest form, it's about making everything you do as a business smarter. And that really, I think, is the role of intelligence. How can I use it to drive intelligence into everything I do? So I think that's my key message at the end of the day. The technology is there to enable that. Um, and by starting small, you can manage um, the, the uncertainty around the, you know, how you implement that technology and, and really drive real business results. And we see it all over the place with our customers. I think uh, to get more information, um, www.amdocs.com. Uh, we'll give you a whole host of information around what we're doing in the intelligence domain, our solutions, what our customers are doing, and how we see intelligence as a core part of the digital transformation journey. Sure. And and just to add to that, like you guys have kind of a bunch of um, articles and blog posts kind of around a bunch of the stuff that we talked about too that I was looking at and, and were quite fascinating. So I think just people, you have a bunch of resources on there that people can just kind of go and read more about the space and some of the things we talked about today. Um, yeah, but absolutely. But Shannon, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Thanks, you too. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.